Well, if you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. As you're turning there, let me, let me quote D.A. Carson. In a caricature of modern Christianity, D.A. Carson says, I'd like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel and conversion that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial and trials, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I'd like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those of different races, especially if they smell. I'd like enough gospel to make my family emotionally secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I'd like to buy about $3 of gospel and conversion, please, but no more. So what makes a church different from the world? The world likes friends. So do we. The world likes music. So do we. The world has its clubs, its organizations, its movements. And we have this. The world has its agendas and we have some of our own. But do we have only $3 worth of gospel? Is that all we want? Or another way to ask the question would be, why are we here this morning? Why make the effort to get up out of bed, to, to put some clothes on, even if not your nicest? To be here, to do this thing. Well, we're in the middle of a three-week series about who we are as a church and what we do as a church, and really we're talking about the grandest, loftiest things there, there are in all of creation. The Westminster Confession, sorry, the Catechism, asks as its first question, what's the chief end of man? Why are we here? Why do we exist? Its answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's it. It's what life's about. It's what job's about. What parenting's about. What marriage is ultimately about. And certainly what church is about. And so last week we talked about the fact that our, our biggest umbrella as a church, our aim as a church, mission statement if you like, is that we're spreading God's glory broader and deeper. And we say that we do that with three different words, with worship, community, and mission. So we've been looking at one of these per week, again, in the middle of this three-week series. So last week, I asked the question, if someone asks you, what do you mean by worship? You Christians talk about worship. Is that what I see on TV? What does it look like? What do you do with worship? When do you do worship? Where do you do worship? What would you say? This week, I want to ask the question, what do we mean by community when we say worship community mission because community is an expression of spreading God's glory broader and deeper in this world. We're tying it into the grandest, the, the most lofty thing in all the world, his glory, why we're here, 
what we're supposed to do. Now, let's first establish that we need community. We need togetherness. I think we were made to go together. I think we were made for relationships. You see, that's why marriage exists, why different genders exist, according to Genesis chapter 2. God saw the man was alone, and he said it's not good for the man to be alone. Amen, guys? And so he made Eve a counterpart, a partner in life together. We were made for relationships. We were made for community, and that's true of human beings in general, but it's especially true for Christians and especially true for the church. So last week, 1 Peter 2.5 is the passage we focused on where it talks about living stones coming together which build up walls for a sort of spiritual building. It's not a, a literal building, just like these aren't literal bricks. These are living bricks or people. And these people go together to be a dwelling place of God. We were made to go together just like bricks were made to go together. Or in Romans 12, the word picture is that we're a body as a church. We have different parts. We have different members. Each of us does different things, offers different things. We're not all made the same way. Some are more visible than others. But each is important. Veins aren't very visible, but they're essential to the body. We all do different things, but we're part of a whole just like a body. And yet we live in a culture of individualism. We live in a culture that likes community only on its own terms. We we have community today, it seems like, an inch deep and a mile wide. You can use that that phrase, an inch deep, a mile wide, for a lot of things. That's how we get our information these days, right? We get more information these days than we used to 50 years ago, but none of us are experts on anything. Inch deep, a mile wide in how we get information, and I think increasingly so, an inch deep and a mile wide in our relationships. I don't do Facebook. Some of you do. I'm not totally against Facebook, I think there's some neat opportunities for Facebook or Twitter, connecting with people on on the web and and through email. It's great to reestablish relationships with old high school friends. We can reconnect like that for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom, to show love and, and to be connected. That's a good thing. But I think one subtle danger is to confuse that kind of growing communication and that growing sense of community for what the Bible really calls community. I mean, in Facebook, it's, I hear, no big deal to defriend someone. It just means you stop following along on the wall, right? Well, it should hurt to defriend people. We shouldn't get so used to Facebook defriending that, that we're used to defriending real, human, up-close, and personal relationships. We live in a culture of individualism. We live in a culture of consumerism, which means that we're almost always putting our own needs and wants above others simply because it's the water that we're swimming in. We're wet with it. Everything around us is, what would you prefer? Everything around us is, do I like this right now? We, we live with a, an ongoing monitor. Maybe you've seen a heart monitor before, right? With a graph that's going like this as your heart is beating. 
We live with a contentment monitor that we're all very well aware of. Am I having fun right now? Am I liking this conversation right now? Should I be doing something else right now? Can I be doing something else right now? How do I get out of here? It's consumerism. And we live in a culture that's increasingly fickle. Commitment and toughing it out are today less admired than they were two or three generations ago. No doubt there's some serious carryover to the church if this is the water that we're all swimming in. So today it's very easy to stop this or that ministry you're a part of. And and sometimes it's the right thing to do. Sometimes you should stop that ministry that you're in. You're doing five or six of them. And and sometimes it's, it's better to do less better than to do more, not as well. But maybe it's too easy for us to drop this or that. Maybe it's too easy these days for us to switch churches. So one of the things I want to get at today is to ask you, how easy would it be for you to leave Desert Springs Church, assuming you've been here for a little bit of time? Both internally and externally. Internally, how easy would it be for you to leave Desert Springs Church? Would that be a a tough thing, something to wrestle through, pray through? It would take a long time to come to that kind of decision. And externally, is there a sort of fabric, a network, a web of loving partnerships around you that make it difficult for you to just jump jump out of one church and into another? What if you didn't know how good it could be 10 years in at the same church? It dawned on me this week that this is the church I've been in longer than any other in my life. I like that. I've been at other churches for five or six years, one church I think almost seven, but I've been at Desert Springs now about seven and a half. And one thing I've realized is that it's harder than it used to be, and better than it used to be. Now, if you've been at a church for seven years or more, and you've been really connected and plugged in, you know exactly what I mean by it's better than it used to be, and it's harder. It's harder in a good way. I can't get away with crap like I used to be able to, (laughs) right? I got guys who know me. They know my my struggles. They, They know the things I do, the things... The things I try to sneak around in a sense. 10 years in, I'm sure. 20 years in. 30 years in at the same church, I'm sure I'll be saying the same thing again. I didn't know how wonderfully hard this would be. And how wonderfully helpful and good this could be. That's what Hebrews 10 talks about. So turn to Hebrews 10 and start reading with me in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me first try to trace the structure of this passage. Maybe you've heard this before in a sermon. Maybe you've seen it on your own before. It doesn't take much reading of this passage. Maybe three, four times through before you notice something that's repeated. There are two senses, S-I-N-C-E, two words of since. One in verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter. Verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God. And then the second half of this, this section gives us three lettuces. I'm not talking about a salad here. I'm talking about two words, let us It's repeated three times. Verse 22. Since, remember, since and since. So you can see this is still a a full sentence. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Beginning in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. You can see two halves to to the passage. There are the senses and then the lettuces. The senses are the what we call the basis, maybe. And then the lettuce is the, the work, what we do, how we do this thing of community. Now, the passage isn't just about community. Other things are certainly mentioned, but the greatest percentage of a theme is community. Verses 24 and 25 those words are more, of, more than one-third of the whole of this passage that I just read. You can see that's where the passage is heading. That's what's at the end. Community, togetherness, fellowship, one another, encouraging one another, loving one another, meeting together with one another. And really, the whole passage has a sort of communal aspect to it in that us And we are used all the way through. It never says you individually, singularly, should do X, Y, and Z. It says us, we, we have this together, and so we should do these things together. We, us, are in it together. So I don't think we're out of line to look at this passage as a whole in light of the theme that comes at the end, that theme of togetherness, that theme of community, that theme of fellowship in one another's. But it starts with what's the basis for community. That's the first section. And four things, I think, at least are given about the basis for community. What we share, sort of the the foundation, the slab of concrete that's laid down upon which the community house is built. Four pillars, if you like. One, Jesus is a great high priest. We share that. Verse 21 says, we have, plural, we have a great priest. Meaning we have, we have someone who intercedes for us. Far better than the priests of the old covenant who you know, would go into the Holy of Holies once a year to make sacrifice for the people. And it would happen year after year. Hebrews says elsewhere, it never really took away sin. That's why it had to keep going. But we have a priest who entered that holy place 
perfectly clean. Oh, the priests of the Old Covenant had to do all these washing and putting on different clothes and, and, you know, purifying themselves and doing step one, two, three, four before you could finally enter the holy place. But we have a great priest who doesn't have to do any prep to go in. He has every right to be in God's presence. He is God. He knows that place well. He can enter it boldly. We have a great priest. We also have, secondly, his blood. The priest is also the sacrifice. Oh, we need a better priest than that which we had in the old covenant. We need a better sacrifice. The goal was to get a a sacrifice without blemish. One without spot, without problem. And Christ is perfectly righteous. He's spotless. He took our our punishment. His blood spilt for us. So all of this, what's talked about here, from the community at the end of the passage, through these things that are the basis for community at the beginning of the passage, it all comes to us by the blood of Jesus. Verse 19 says, He died, the just for the unjust, Peter says, to bring us to God. He died in the place of sinners that we might be restored, forgiven. So if you're not a Christian, I need to clarify a couple of things, especially in a message like this this morning. Number one, I need to clarify that you can't get to the kind of community that we're talking about, that we will talk about, except through Jesus. We can't allow you to think that this is simply just a horizontal exercise, simply a group that, has to, that, that happens to have religion in common. And you can kind of believe, kind of not believe, but still get the same benefit of care and love. Oh, we, we want to care for you. We want to love for you. Let us know what we can do to serve you. But the kind of community, connectivity, communion, connection, Love and sacrifice, fellowship and sharing that I'm talking about this morning can only come through the blood of Jesus where he first restores us to him, then sets to make relationships right in our lives with others. Secondly, if you're not a Christian, I have to clarify that we don't expect you to want the kind of community that we're talking about. Unless, by his grace, God gives you a new heart. We're talking about a kind of community that, in love, gets in each other's face. We're talking about a kind of community that, that does care for our brothers and sisters, even when they say they don't want it. But they told us before that they know that they need it, and so we do it. I don't expect that every non-Christian will want that kind of community, that kind of personal, upfront, helpful, even sometimes confrontational community. comes through his blood. Third, the basis for community here talks about access to God. Verses 19, we have confidence to enter that holy place by the blood of Jesus. Again, referring to that innermost part of the tabernacle and then later the permanent temple, the holy of holies, where God dwells. We have confidence to go in there 
Verse 20 says, he opened that part of God's presence up to us through the curtain which is his flesh. What's that talking about? Well, there was a curtain that separated the holy of holies from the the second part of the temple and then the third part of the temple. Sort of outer rings. There's an inner sanctum. We're told in history, not so much in scripture, we're told in history that this cloth that separated the holy of holies from the other parts of the temple was as thick as a man's hand is wide. That's thick. That's thicker than your north face puffy coat. That's thick. And what are we told in the Gospels when Jesus died? What happened? Well, the sky turned black. There was a a bit of an earthquake. And that cloth, as thick as a man's hand is wide, was torn in two. Symbolic of the fact that now we have access to the Holy of Holies. And all of us do, as his flesh was torn, so the access was made. We all have access to God. And hence, it's just called in verse 20, a new and living way that he opened for us. The veil torn, access to God, and now a call to draw near. All those things should sound almost blasphemous on the heels of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant said, so often you cannot draw near. That was the message of the people on Mount Sinai. Yes, God was meeting with Moses. Moses is kind of like a priest when he's doing this. He's meeting there with God to get the Ten Commandments to hear from God about other things. But God says to the people, you shall not draw near. Same two words, draw near. Used at Sinai to tell us, the people of God, you can't come near, you can't touch the mountain, you can't climb up into my presence. But now Hebrews says, through Christ, the better mediator, we draw near into that presence. Radical reorientation of worship and a radical reorientation of identity in that now we're all in that same position of being able to enter into his innermost presence. At least innermost presence until we're in the new heaven and the new earth when it gets even better. So we can't overlook the importance of this basis for community. There can't be shortcuts. We can't just say, tell us what to do. Tell us what the program looks like. Tell me where to go and how to sign up. Tell me how to love and what to say. Tell me what my community group should do. What should it be like? Should we have food? Like dinner or just Ritz? What do we do? We want to know, don't we? It just shows how, how much we love shortcuts. How much we love crossing things off the list instead of embracing the complexity and thoughtfulness that's shown to us in the New Testament. In the New Testament, unity and fellowship are less about warm feelings and experiences together and more about spiritual realities that are shared together. So there's unity of mind whenever unity is talked about. 
A unity of truth, a shared identity, shared experience. We both have the blood of Christ in common, a conversion story in common if we're Christians. We share in the struggles of the Christian life. Oh, you might have slightly different struggles, but we both share the enemy of sin and the frustration of keep seeing that enemy pop up at all the wrong times and far too frequently. We share that. We have that in common when we have nothing else in common. The church does not share necessarily the same culture, or the her- same heritage, or the same ethnicity. In fact, it's purposefully diverse. The church isn't a sharing of the same income levels. There's poor and there's wealthy. It's not even, dare I say, not just a, a sharing of musical tastes or ecclesiastical preferences. I like mid-sized churches. Not one so big that you can't, you know, get a meeting with a pastor. Not one so small that the women's ministry is hokey. Right? Maybe you, you think this is, like Goldilocks, this is just right. But it might be about preferences. A couple weeks ago, Trent preached from Ephesians chapter 4. Let me remind you of that passage. In verse 2, Paul says that with all humility and gentleness, with patience, we should be bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Stop there. These are to-dos. These are things that Paul is pointing us to. He's telling us to to grow in patience, to grow in humility, grow in love and unity and peace. And then he turns to the basis, the reason, the foundation for those things he's calling them to. He says in verse 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called, one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We have a lot in common. And he gets through a whole list of various doctrines, realities that Christians all share, really even across denominations. And that's the basis for his appeal, for their humility and patience and bearing with one another in love. You see, they're connected. Or let me give you another example. Colossians chapter 1. You might remember several months ago when we began that study of Colossians, We looked at how Paul wrote to these Christians in Colossae and saw the warmth, the affection, the love, the care, and the desire to be with them. And we noticed he's never met them. He's never met these people, and yet he writes with such warmth and care and love and affection and desire to see them. Why? Because of what they share in Christ, not because they're alike. And not because they've had a lot of laughs and even a lot of tears together. They haven't. In Acts, there are a few places that show Paul getting into a new town and he goes looking for the Christians. Christians he's never met before. Why is he eager to do that? Because of what they share. Because of what they have in common. Another example, Philippians 4.2 where Paul just gives a sort of parenthetical pastoral comment to a problem in that church. He says, I urge Iodia 
and Syntyche, two ladies in the church, to get along in the Lord. Not just get along. Get along in the Lord. What a difference. Not just get along. I mean, kids can get along. Unbelievers can get along, right? Dignitaries can meet other dignitaries and get along. Everyone can be cordial, especially if you're in the South. But he says, get along in the Lord. He appeals to the reality of their connection in Christ as the basis for which there should be peace and unity between two brawling ladies. Or Philippians 2. Let me spend just a little bit more time on Philippians 2. Philippians 2 verse 1 says this, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, stop there, you see how this is like the sense, the senses of Hebrews 10? He's establishing reality, basis, things you have. Therefore, verse 2, the therefore isn't there, but it's logically there. Because of that, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. And then he even gets more specific, verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look out for their interests above your own interests. And then he gets into that wonderful, what we call Christology. The theology of Christ in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus. And then, you know, he goes on to describe the complexity and richness of what it means that the second person of the Trinity came down, became a man, was a servant, suffered, and died. That's the example for us. Have that mind in yourselves. And why does he spend so much time? Why doesn't he just say, have the mind of Jesus? Now let me move on to my next thought. Why does he spend three, four verses or so after verse five on who Christ is, what Christ has done? Some, again, of the richest Christology in all the Bible here is given for the reason that we would love each other. In other words, meditating on Christ and his Servant sacrifice brings motivation and power to do what he's asking of us in verses 3 and 4. Namely, to be humble, to serve others, and to see their needs more important than our own. You don't love people enough? Look less at people and more at Christ. I accept you, we should say. In our heads, I accept you, friend, because Christ has already, forever, completely accepted you. Who am I to be holier than Jesus? Who am I to be more stringent than the King of Kings? Who am I to have, have higher criteria than he does? How else, by the way, can you do fellowship when people stink. Because people stink. I stink. Not literally, hopefully, but, but... I mean, you get close enough and I will let you down. You get close enough and you will see warts, plenty of them. 
You get close enough to me and, and you'll see that it's not Sunday morning preaching everywhere I go. Sometimes I'm a bummer. I'm down. I will let you down. So how do we do what the Bible's calling us to do? How do we live like this reality is real when people stink? We have to tie it into something bigger than people. We have to tie it into something bigger than ourselves. Something that's based not just on each other's performance. And yet, that said, there are some parts of the New Testament that talk about shared experiences. Numbers of years together. In Acts 20, Paul says, Haven't I been with you for 18 months? He gives them a reference. I was with you for 18 months. Why? Why does he say that? Because they can picture those experiences, those Sundays, those gatherings, those Bible studies, maybe mission together. They can picture it. They know it. And that, that isn't contrary to what we've already been seeing about the eternal spiritual realities that connect all of us as Christians apart from experience. It's complementary to see in Acts 20 and other places that there are times to talk about shared experiences and numbers of years together. It reminds us that we're in this for the long haul, that these relationships are established step by step, experience after experience. That there aren't shortcuts to true and real and spiritual fellowship. That we need to look at this a little bit like going to the gym where you just have to put in your time. That's half the battle. Just put in your time. You just go and you push things and you pull things. And you can even do it wrong. But there's still some benefit to just going and getting in and pushing and pulling. At least I'm told. But... It's kind of like that with the church. Something about just putting in the time. Just doing it, just being together and trying to do what the church is supposed to do. What is it supposed to do? Well, let's talk about the purpose of community. The second section of the notes, the purpose of community. And before we get into what the passage says about the purpose of community, I have to at least remind you of the different places in which community takes place at Desert Springs Church. I can think of at least seven spheres of community, seven places for community here at Desert Springs. Just like we talked last week about different spheres of worship, different ways in which we do worship as a church. So we should also remind ourselves of where and how we do community. The first of these seven is Sunday morning, right here, right now. This is worship but it's not just worship, it is also community. Again, 1 Peter 2, 5, the living stones come together to be a, a house for the presence of God. Yes, a house for the presence of God, but they come together to do it. They, they touch each other to do it. They get connected with each other in order to do it. Colossians 3, verse 16, reminds us that our singing, in part, is teaching and admonishing one another. So that when we read scripture from the Psalms out loud, it says, praise the Lord. When we sing a, a phrase like that, praise the Lord, we're saying that to ourselves, reminding ourselves to, to praise him, and we're saying it to each other. We're obeying Colossians three sixteen. Even in our singing, there's something horizontal about what's happening, not just vertical. 
So we need to do these things in a consciously corporate way. It means when we meet together, even when we don't know many people here, we need to look around. We need to notice that we're not alone. Our worship center is built with this in mind, I think. I wasn't here when they talked about the architecture, but I I love that it's sort of a horseshoe. You know, part of the problem is that you can see someone picking their nose over there. You could be distracted. But the benefit is that you get to see people sing in a shotgun-style auditorium where everyone's facing one way. You don't see that. You just see heads, backs, back of heads. So when we meet together, let's sing and let's be consciously corporate about our meeting together. Let's look at each other even when we don't know each other. Let's smile to each other even when we haven't yet met each other. And let's get to know each other, which means visiting before and after the service, I think. Just a bit. That can't be the sum total of community here at Desert Springs Church. We eat cookies and we chat for five minutes. That's not enough, but you know what? It's a start. So if you're coming in late and you're leaving early or leaving right on time, you're missing out on something we intend for Sunday morning seeing others, connecting with them. Of course, Lord's Suppers are like that. It's the second sort of sphere of community here. Last Wednesday of every month, the third thing would be right next to it, the Lord's Supper dinners right before at 5.30. Carlos mentioned that earlier in the service already. We're getting ready for one in just a few days. A time to come together, put name tags on, share food, sit with people that you maybe know, maybe don't know, a wonderful way to begin to get to know people. A fourth sphere of community here would be various ministries. I'd put Bible studies under this heading, women's studies, men's huddles, or partnering together for a a task like the hospitality uh, greeting ministry. That's various ministries. Fifth would be community groups. Uh, Community groups here, we say, aren't mandatory for our members, but boy, it is certainly the best way to do an all-around approach to community. You can maybe pull off community, like the Bible says, by doing other things in community group, but probably not. Most of us not. Community group is a way in which we share life together, we do Bible together, we pray together, share food together, share lives together, share struggles together. Pray for one another and help each other throughout the week. A sixth would be hospitality, where you invite an individual or a couple or a couple of couples over to your house for a meal or out for a meal. Don't forget that's actually commanded a few different times in the New Testament. We're commanded as Christians to be hospitable, to practice hospitality. And then one-on-one get-togethers. Maybe a little optional if... You're doing all the others. That could be a single meeting or meeting weekly or bi-weekly for accountability or discipleship or whatever. And of course, if you haven't yet done our membership class, that's a a way in which you funnel into some of these things. That's a a great start to to make sure we're on the same page with these, these basis things, right? These foundation things. Let me also mention a a 
a book that was uh, mentioned just a couple of weeks ago, a book called Trellis in Vine. We have a few copies out here at the Resource Center still. It's really a book for leaders, but I love that concept of trellis and vine, that there are programs that are trellis, they're structure. And those structures are there so that living vines grow. The structure's there so that they grow in the right way and they grow strong. But it doesn't mean that the trellis is all that we're about in the least. In fact, there's a way in which programs can be nothing more than decorating with fake fruit. Right? It doesn't necessarily mean because we have this program in place that the real thing is happening. It could just be fake fruit. We'll just be getting together and sounding like Christians. Getting together and sounding like we're doing what the Bible says Christians should be doing. But there's a greater spiritual rule. Only God can bless us with love for each other and sacrifice for each other. Putting others' interests above our own, like the Bible says. But we need something for it to grow on. Okay, now, the rest of the outline as we wrap this up. The purpose or aims of community here, according to Hebrews 10. The first is worship in verse 22. Entering the holy places by the blood of Jesus and drawing near. Community is togetherness in worship. Secondly, assurance is a purpose for community. Verse 22. A true heart in full assurance of faith is what the writer of Hebrews is aiming for. Hearts that are sprinkled clean and feel like they're clean. This means that assurance is something of a, a group exercise. We help each other with assurance. We help each other with our struggles about our assurance or lack thereof. Third, perseverance, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us keep believing. Let's hold tight to Christ and never let him go. Again, a group effort. Again, a corporate enterprise. We need each other to keep believing. It's not just me and God in my Bible in the equation of me keeping on with Christ. He's given me others. To help me keep on with Christ. Which again leads to this fourth thing. thing we're implying already and now is clear. Verses 24 and 25 can be described just as help. Help. And it gives seven ways to help each other. Let me point them out before we finish. Seven ways to help each other. The first is by meeting together. Verse 25 don't forsake assembling together. And I think, I, I think we'd have to apply that, apply that in our 21st century context here at Desert Springs in both a small context and a larger context. In other words, don't forsake meeting together means not just this big group, but also in smaller groups where things get more real, more personal, more honest. And not just in your small group. That's not just where it's at. But together, meet together. Secondly, another way to help each other is by stimulating. Verse 24, the ESV says, stir up one another to love and good works. It doesn't say consider how to love and do good deeds. It says consider how to help others do love and good deeds. Notice the focus is not on ourselves here. It's on others. 
And the focus isn't also on a task or a job or a program or a ministry. The focus is on people. You see that? Consider each other. So the third is strategizing. Consider. Chew on it. Figure it out. Solve the problem of how to consider each other to stir up love and good works. Notice it isn't exactly top-down. He doesn't pause here and say, now a, a quick note to the elders who are in charge. Make sure you guys find dynamic programs to meet these needs. It's not top-down. It's instead just given to everyone. Everyone should think about, evaluate, strategize together how to, how to stir up love in others, how to stir up good deeds in others. Which I think implies making it a regular prayer request. Lord, give me wisdom on how to stir up my friend. Lord, give me wisdom for how to speak life into my community group. How to admonish like you want me to. Lord, give me wisdom how to provoke or how to entice these people, my friends, to love more and do good. The fourth thing of help is by pleading. We plead like the author of Hebrews is doing here with all these let us statements. He's pleading. Come on, let's do it. Come on, he's painting the vision. We need more of our own let us statements. Fifth, by assuring and comforting and reminding each other like he does at the end of verse 23, he who promised is faithful. An exhortation to persevere is given right there with a comfort that he'll do it. He's faithful. Six, by encouraging. It's explicit, verse 25, encouraging one another. Every Christian should memorize Ephesians 4, 29, that no corrupt communication would come out of our mouths, but instead we would use words for the edification of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And seventh, by looking it says at the end, all the more as you see the day approaching, by being watchful together, by knowing that it's not done. He is coming back. He will fix this all, including us. In other words, these things are fuel for worship, fuel for assurance. These are guardrails for our perseverance. We need each other. It's easier to desert the gospel outside of a church than it is within. It's easier to desert the gospel outside of a community group than it is within. I want to keep believing. I don't want to shipwreck my faith. I want to finish the fight and have run the good race. I need others to help me in that. Now here's the kicker. Save the kicker for the end. In considering each other and focusing on them and not ourselves, we are actually stirring ourselves up. In the process of stirring up their love and good deeds, we are doing love and good deeds. And doing love and good deeds stirs up more love and good deeds. Ironic, isn't it? It's like if you aim at that, you won't get it. You have to aim over there to get this. 
You can't aim at yourself in order to be helped. You have to aim at others, and lo and behold, you're helped. You're strengthened. You grow. You're changed. Our needs are not met by focusing on our needs being met. That's the community economy of the new covenant. We are ministered to by ministering. Therefore, it is almost always, almost always, not always, but it is almost always self-incriminating to say, my needs are not just being met. We hear it a lot. As leaders in this church, we hear a lot. I'm going to go someplace else because my needs aren't being met. Now, sometimes there's reason for reflection and there's a problem and oftentimes it's something we're working on as leaders. We say, I know it's, it's weak, it's short, it's It isn't like it should. But so often, it's a fair question for us to say, tell me where you're serving. Show me how you're loving. Tell me when you're meeting. And so often, in the case of someone who's been at the church for a while, it's that they pulled back six months ago, a year ago. Two years ago, you pull back and I guarantee you, you will be restless and you will want something more. But it isn't always just at another church. I wonder what it will be 10 years from now at the same church. I think you'll be helped by God's grace.